Coming up on Tech Nation, journalist Jason Fagoni talks about Elizabeth Smith Friedman, a pioneer in code breaking, from World War I to rum runners, to drug smuggling, to even the famous Enigma machine. His book is The Woman Who Smashed Codes, a true story of love, spies, and the unlikely heroine who outwitted America's enemies. Then on Tech Nation Health, Dr. Marco Taglietti, the president and CEO of Synexus. He tells us about their work in serious invasive fungal infections. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In a 2013 Tech Nation interview, Poe Bronson talked about his book, Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. He cites numerous scientific studies, and in many, the scientists ask people to chew sponges. I asked him, what's up with that? Scholars, researchers are really interested in measuring the telltale biomarkers of competition and performance. And this technology has gotten sophisticated enough now that you can get a little saliva uh, and you can spit into a little tube or into a cup. But the easiest way to do it today is to use a salivette and you chew the salivette like a piece of chewing gum for 30 seconds and you spit it out. And the scholars will measure all sorts of biomarkers off just this little saliva test. It could be as simple as something that's looking for like alpha amylase, a broad marker for sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight response activity, or you can get really specific with it, you know, down to uh, minute changes in testosterone levels to uh, the whole neuroendocrine cascade that uh, works through your body. At the very beginning of the book, uh, there was a, a scholar out of Germany who did this in the wine country, and she convinced a whole bunch of people to go skydive for the very first time. And they jumped out of a plane at 10,000 feet solo, you know, chewing a salivette to see exactly what was going on in their body exactly <laughs> the moment that of moment. terror. Recorded. Scaring them to death was exactly the point of I'd her swallow it. That's the problem. And, and yeah, and the, and the markers said these people are freaked out, right? But what was interesting is she made them do it uh, three times, sometimes three times over a couple days or, or, or even on the same day or even in a single hour. And what she found is that you acclimate to free-falling towards Earth at 120 miles an hour very quickly, that even your second jump, the stress level goes down by a third, and on your third jump, it's like driving in traffic, uh, that you acclimate to this very well. But meanwhile, there was this other scholar just a little north, and he was studying ballroom dancing competitions, and he was having amateur ballroom dancers who were there for the regional dance competition chew little salivettes, and no matter how much experience they'd had, whether they'd had one-year experience or five years or 10 years or 15 years, no matter what, their stress response was just as high as anybody else, pretty much close to, but not quite, a, a first parachute jump, which is interesting. So why can people acclimate to jumping out of an airplane at 10,000 feet, going 120 miles an hour towards Earth, but can't acclimate 
to the unique stress of competing, because it wasn't the dancing that was causing the stress. It was the being judged. It was the sense of winning and losing, the sense of having to avoid making a single mistake. And that is very interesting because we've heard for quite a while now that it takes 10 years of practice to become an expert, to become an authority in something, to be great at it. And we felt something was missing from that success formula. That's not wrong, just that there's an additive thing, which is that we're not judged on how we practice. We're judging how we actually perform when the band is playing, the lights are bright, and the music is going. And what it turns out is that while we all have this enormous stress flood when we have to compete, we interpret it differently. Our our bodies do. Our bodies physiologically interpret it differently, but our minds interpret it differently. That if you ask expert performers, professional athletes or professional musicians and the like, they all get really anxious and stressed out before a big performance. But they see that as beneficial. To them, it excites them, it awakens them, it gets them ready. While uh, novice performers feel that same sensation but think it's damaging their performance. And learning to go from seeing stress as harmful to seeing stress as beneficial is crucial to sort of really learning to manifest competitive fire when you have to. You might know Poe Bronson from his other books, including The First 20 Million is Always the Hardest, Nurture Shock, and What Should I Do With My Life? I was able to speak with Poe about Top Dog, the science of winning and losing on Tech Nation in 2013. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, journalist Jason Fagoni joins us to talk about The Woman Who Smashed Codes, a true story of love, spies, and the unlikely heroine who outwitted America's enemies. Then on Tech Nation Health, Dr. Marco Taglietti from Synexis. He talks about serious invasive fungal infections and their approach to treatment. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. Jason Fagoni starts his story in the year 1916. The place is tiny Huntington, Indiana, on the banks of the Wabash. The person is a young 23-year-old schoolteacher, a daughter of Quakers. It's kind of a classic American story in a lot of ways. A bright young woman, Elizabeth Smith, from a large Quaker family in the Midwest. She was the last of nine, kind of a sickly kid. Um, she was very smart. She loved poetry growing up, and she ended up going to a liberal arts college studying literature. She studied poetry, the poems of Tennyson, uh, the plays of William Shakespeare. She graduated, and she got the job that was kind of available for a lot of women to, to get in that era, uh, which was kind of the end of the line for a bright young woman, which was school teacher. And she taught high school in a small town in Indiana, very much like the small town where she grew up. But the thing was with Elizabeth is that she was ambitious, and she was 
brave and she uh, was bored with being a school teacher. And so <laughs> ambitious, one... brave and bored. What a mix. <laughs> what a combination, right? <laughs> and so one day in June 1916, she, she up and quit her job as a teacher and she moved to the big city to Chicago to look for something uh, more unusual is, is what she said. And she ended up having a completely chance meeting in Chicago with an eccentric Gilded Age tycoon that absolutely transformed her life. But not only her life, uh, it en- ended up transforming the shape of the 20th century. Now, that was George, is it Fabian? Fabian, yes. Fabian. And uh, he had this estate, Riverbank, which is just just outside Chicago, or maybe it's part of Chicago now, for all I know, and still there. Um, He was eccentric. I mean, he funded all, he's a tycoon, as they used to say in those days, and he, he had a hobby of science, and he had a hobby of this and a hobby of that. What did he want her to do when she came to, to so Riverbank? So George Fabian was... Similar to other Gilded Age tycoons in that he had more money than God and he could kind of create his own kingdom around himself with his own rules. In that, he was he was like William Randolph Hearst. He was like Andrew Carnegie. But what was different about George Fabian is that whereas those guys would spend their money on sort of impressionist artwork or building castles, Fabian was really interested in science. He was interested in discovering the secrets of nature that had not yet been discovered. And although he was a high school dropout, He was very intelligent, and he had all of this money at his disposal to essentially build a scientific laboratory on his private mansion, which which he called Riverbank Laboratories. This was 350 acres outside of Chicago. And so Riverbank became, under his direction, kind of like half of a rich man's fantasy land and half scientific laboratories similar to uh, Thomas Edison's uh, Menlo Park Labs or Nikola Tesla's private laboratory. It was a place where... You know, on any given weekend, Teddy Roosevelt might be there strolling the grounds, talking with Fabian about agriculture. Famous actresses of the day would be there, Lily Langtree and Billy Burke. You know, rich people sort of enjoying their leisure time. But there would also be some of the greatest uh, scientists in the country there working on discovering the secrets of nature. And that's why George Fabian hired Elizabeth Smith on the spot, is because one of his obsessions was in trying to uh, discover what he thought were secret messages hidden in the works of Shakespeare. And he knew that uh, Elizabeth was bright and that she had studied Shakespeare. And that was enough for him. And so he hired her on the spot, and, and she went to work in this kind of very strange world. Looking for secret messages encrypted in Shakespeare. Exactly. Yes. So the idea was that... Shakespeare's plays contained a number of messages that were written in a cipher by somebody who was not William Shakespeare. The theory was that the plays had actually been written by one of Shakespeare's contemporaries, a guy named uh, Sir Francis Bacon. And George Fabian believed, and a lot of people at that time believed, uh, Mark Twain believed this and, and other famous authors believed this, that Bacon had had really written these plays and that he had smuggled proof of his authorship inside the plays themselves in, in the very original printings of Shakespeare's plays in the 17th century. And Fabian believed that these secret messages could be discovered, that they could be uh, unearthed. And they could be revealed to the world through the art of, uh, of code breaking, which is nothing less than discovering uh, secret messages without knowing the key. And so this was the project that Elizabeth began with. This was the very start of her, uh, of her career in code breaking, was trying to find uh, essentially the messages placed by a ghost in the works of William Shakespeare. 
hey, it's a job, and uh, you probably just say you had a job when you wrote home to your parents, didn't say, look what I'm trying to do. <laughs> it's better than teaching high school, I think. Better than teaching high school. And shortly there, when she came there, she uh, she met her husband-to-be, William Friedman, who was a geneticist, an agricultural geneticist. Yes, another sort of classic American element to the story. Two people from completely different worlds. On the one hand, you have Elizabeth Smith, 23 years old, from a large Quaker family in the Midwest. She meets a young man, 24 years old, from a Jewish family in Pittsburgh, William Friedman. Um, he had studied genetics, and he was one of these scientists who had been brought to Riverbank by this crazy tycoon because he knew something about science. Uh, William was breeding fruit flies in a, in a little laboratory inside of a windmill at Riverbank. And uh, Fabian had brought him there to try to create new kinds of strains of corn that might have some agricultural use. But, but ultimately, uh, William also had another skill. He was really good with photography. And the Shakespeare Project uh, involved taking close-up images of very old books and enlarging them to try to find these secret messages that were planted there. So William uh, got roped into this kind of Shakespeare project, too. And, and meanwhile, Elizabeth Smith was working on this project, and they started working on it together. And they were, they were thrown in together uh, uh, at a very uh, early time at this riverbank adventure that, that uh, Elizabeth was having. And, and they just kind of instantly clicked. You know, they had a bond. Um, they love talking to each other, and they love to sit across the table from each other um, looking for these secret messages. And that bond only strengthened the more time that they spent with each other. And within a year, they were married. I like how you refer to them as a duo. <laughs> it wasn't just like you were a couple. It's like, we're going to uh, together work on this. And, well, yeah, that, that's very much was. how it was for them is that, is that um, you know, individually they were both brilliant, but together – they were more than the sum of their parts. They felt that if they were working together, they could be four times as good or even more. Was, there was just something about uh, their brains that kind of connected and clicked. And I think this happens a lot of the time when people are falling in love, right? This is an element of falling in love with another human being is that you discover that you share the same brainwaves, that, that you are maybe finishing each other's sentences. And, and with Elizabeth and William, there was this additional element of, of, of learning how to uncover secret messages at the same time they were falling in love. And, and ultimately, that became uh, an element of their love letters to each other. Uh, they started to write each other letters that were in code, and they would include these little sign-offs at the end of the letters that are remarkable to look at. A hundred years later, they still pack such a such a punch. Um, Did you, know, you decode them? Yes. Well, they're, they're not some of the some of the hardest some of the hardest ones to. I mean, sometimes it was it, early in their professional careers as <laughs> decode. They didn't know they were becoming code breakers for life. Well, I mean, right? They were they were in their twenties. Uh, they were at the very beginning of of kind of this adventure. But both of them turned out to be uh, incredibly important people in the development of um, not just the science of of code breaking, but the growth uh, of the American intelligence community itself. Today, William Friedman is uh, considered to be the godfather of the National Security Agency. If you go to NSA headquarters in Fort Meade, uh, outside of the auditorium that is named for him, there's a giant bronze bust of his head. You know, until I wrote this book, Elizabeth's contributions weren't quite as well known for a number of reasons that we can talk about, but she was there uh, every step of the way. And um, in fact, the early scientific papers that William is, is often credited with writing alone you know, I went back into the uh, archives 
uh, of the Riverbank Cipher Division, which are kept at the New York Public Library. And when you look at the original drafts, you see Elizabeth's handwriting all over them. So I think a lot of these early papers were, uh, were their joint work. Um, William considered the papers to be, quote, ours. And on his, on his personal copies of the papers, even though her name was not included uh, in the printed versions, he wrote her name in uh, on, the, on the author page as, as co-author. So I think they, they very much considered themselves a duo, a team, uh, from a very early time. It's not unlike Alvin and Heidi Toffler, who the first time I interviewed them, uh, I knew that you know, this particular book that had had both of their names as authors. And I was standing out in the street because we had, you know, very short time. So they had to pull up. I had to get them out, get them in here, do yeah. the interview, put them out. They came up. You could see them in the back. They're just talking, talking. They talked from the time they got out in the car, out of the car, up here. I turned record on. <laughs> we turned record off. I took them back, put them in the car. They just talked. They must have talked from the moment they met. <laughs> yeah. Did, well, did they consider themselves a, a team? A I asked them team about that. I said, you know, gee, we have a lot of Alvin Toffler books, famous ones, Future Shock, The Third Way. Sure. And um, he left in. And I said, and I said suddenly, now there's suddenly Heidi and Alvin. Is this, you know, new wife jumps on the bandwagon? You know, we laughed about that. And he goes, we discussed everything. We fed off each other. And he said, but in those days, I couldn't put her name on the book. And we understood that. And he goes, look, and he whips out. One business card has them both on it. <laughs> so it's not unlike that. I mean, it's right. it's a reality when people are that close together. Yeah, I think that's how it was with Elizabeth for in those early years is that she felt like William was probably going to be the breadwinner of the family and so that made more sense for his name to be on the papers because it would accrue to his reputation, would help them sort of make their make their way in the world. But um, but they, they saw it as, as very much... Uh, very much joint work. In fact, you know, William's early letters to her, he is constantly praising her mind. You know, he, he said that uh, he thought she had him skinned to a frazzle uh, in the brains department and that she was better at, at ciphers than him. And, and all their lives, uh, people who, who saw them up close, saw them work together and knew uh, the importance of their work had, had difficulty determining which, uh, which of the freedmen was the superior. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is journalist Jason Fagoni. Recognized by the Columbia Journalism Review, you've seen his work in the media, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, Esquire, and Philadelphia Magazine. He's here today with The Woman Who Smashed Codes, a true story of love, spies, and the unlikely heroine who outwitted America's enemies. Well, we need to get from from A to Z here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What happened in the meantime? And George Fabian at Riverbank, you know, while he assembled all these people, basically assembled a whole group of code breakers, as it turned out, even if they didn't start there. And um, think about the time, 1916, 1917, 1918. We're talking about the outbreak of World War One, or they didn't call it World War One, the Great War. Um, and there wasn't an NSA or a CIA or an FBI, et cetera. So for the first eight months of the war, all the U.S. code-breaking work was contracted out to Riverbank. Yes, it's amazing to think about now, and it's one of the things that surprised me about this story because I think that we tend to to think about our intelligence agencies, NSA, FBI, CIA, as as being all as ha- always having been this powerful, right, and this mighty. But um, in 1916, when Elizabeth arrived at Riverbank, there there was no NSA, there was no CIA, and the FBI was very young. And so in 1917, when America uh, entered World War One. 
there was really no intelligence community to speak of. And what that meant is there was no way for America to read the secret messages that were being sent by the enemy, by Germany. And this was a problem because you really need to do that when you're going to war. And so the U.S. government, out of simple desperation and not having any other option, turned to Riverbank and George Fabian and his team of codebreakers. They turned to Elizabeth and to William. And so very quickly, you know, within a year, um, Elizabeth shifted her work from this kind of very eccentric literary project, Goodbye Shakespeare, (laughs) and she became a military codebreaker all of a sudden. Um, And she was very good at it from, from the start. That's the thing is that even though Elizabeth was a poet, um, and a literature scholar, not a trained mathematician. She was a genius at seeing patterns. And fundamentally, this is what code breaking is. It's about seeing patterns in what looks like noise. And um, this is why great code breakers have often come from unusual places and unexpected uh, areas. And Elizabeth was exactly that. She, she very quickly became a master. And within a, uh, the space of about a year, she went from not knowing anything about code breaking at all, not even solving crossword puzzles, to being one of the most accomplished and talented code breakers in all of America. Well, there wasn't an internet at that time. So how did right. they work on that? Yeah, this is uh, another amazing thing about the story is that this, it's before the internet, of course, and before the digital computer. No computers. So this was entirely a game of pencil, paper, and your mind. You would sit at a table with a stack of puzzles uh, looking at blocks of gobbledygook, you know, blocks of garbled letters. You would have to uh, work out with your pencil ways to chop those blocks into their constituent parts, sift through all of the letters, whirl them around, count them and measure them in certain ways, and then rearrange them into their original order. That was the game of code breaking. And um, what Riverbank was doing in the early days of World War One is they were receiving telegrams and uh, packages through the mail from Washington. Washington would send all of the messages that they needed solved out to the Illinois prairie. And then Elizabeth and William and the other codebreakers there would, would solve the messages and send them back. They would send them in the mail if they weren't too urgent and send them by uh, uh, telegraph if they were more urgent. And, um, you know, for the first eight months, as you said, it was the entire codebreaking burden of the American government was uh, being handled by this this small team of codebreakers on on the Illinois Prairie, uh, led by Elizabeth and William, who are these two young people in their 20s. I mean, it's kind of amazing to think about. And this is really where the National Security Agency began. Well, it wasn't called that then, but it clearly traces its roots right back there. Sure. And the first one was the cable and telegraph section, giving you an idea of, of the of the technical capability there. Um, and the, the, it's a fascinating story there, but we there's so much in this book, and we, we just got to move sort of through history and, and, and this duo, and especially Elizabeth here. Uh, after World War One. of course, there's more need for code breaking. There's prohibition. Why was that? Exactly. So uh, Elizabeth and William ended up moving to Washington, D.C. in 1920. In uh, January 1921, they both got jobs with the Army. Uh, their, their job at that point was to create new codes for the, for the Doughboys because the codes were already outdated from World War I. Um, very quickly, Elizabeth grew bored with this work. It wasn't quite as exciting as, as what she'd been doing at Riverbank, so she, uh, she quit. She, she went home. Um, her first child was born soon after, Barbara, a daughter. And she started to write children's books, which had long been uh, one of her ambitions. And at that point, 
Elizabeth kind of thought that her life would would be writing children's books and staying at home and, and raising kids. She had no particular desire to work for the government or, to, or even to have a life in code breaking at all. Um, but what happened is uh, men from the government kept showing up on her doorstep. And this is, this is actually her wording, which I love. I mean, this is how she put it. She said, men from the government keep showing up on my doorstep. And the only way to make them go away is to solve the puzzles that they're asking me to solve. And then maybe they'll go away. But, th- but then they always keep coming back. She was cursed by her ability. <laughs> Don't feed the cat yeah. at the back door. What do I have to say to you? Exactly. No, I mean, she was, she, was, she was cursed by her ability in some sense because she was just so good at what she did. That uh, that she became indispensable, and all through her life, this pattern uh, uh, reoccurred: is that men from the government would show up on her doorstep with a new challenge, a new problem, a new puzzle, and and Elizabeth would uh, would go to work solving it. So, what happened uh, soon after she she moved to Washington is that the, the puzzle that needed to be solved was uh, rum running, prohibition. Prohibition had created a, a vast criminal underworld from nothing. Because nobody could legally drink in the United nobody States. Nobody could legally drink, and that void had to be filled. Uh, so it was filled by, uh, by rum runners, by bootleggers. Very quickly, kind of the era of the gentleman bootlegger that we all think of, you know, sort of a guy with a boat, you know, enjoying the freedom of the waves, making a little money on the side. Clark Gable. <laughs> right. That, that ended by about 1924. That was over. Because what happened is, is that criminal, criminal gangs and organized crime kicked those guys out of the market. And so uh, by 1924, 1925, when men from the government are showing up on Elizabeth's doorstep, the, the problem is completely beyond their control. The, the rum running networks are run by uh, organized crime, people who have a lot of money, syndicates with a lot of money to spend on equipment. And part of the equipment that they're installing on their, on their rum boats is shortwave radio. And so these syndicates were able to organize their illegal rum shipments by uh, sending encrypted messages from shortwave radios on the boats to pirate radio stations that were built on shore. In this way, they were able to elude the Coast Guard and hide all of the details of their criminal activities from uh, from the Coast Guard knowing. And uh, this is why the Coast Guard went to Elizabeth in 1925. They, they said, we have no way of, of understanding what these rum runners are saying to each other. We're completely in the dark. We're overmatched. We need a code breaker. We need somebody to come in to look at these intercepted radio messages full of gobbledygook you know, solve the puzzles and tell us what these rum runners are saying to each other so that we can go and catch them. And, uh, and this is what Elizabeth began to do in 1925 with, uh, with great elan and skill and patience is that she started to use her code-breaking abilities to light up this, this darkened world, to, to map out systematically the networks of the rum runners, the names of the captains, the boats that they were using to transport the liquor, the pirate radio stations on shore, the links between all of these things. She would solve these intercepted radio messages. She would give the answers to law enforcement. And then at the end of the day, she would sometimes even go into court and testify against, against these gangsters in open court. She would sit on the witness stand and explain to a jury exactly how she had sort of stolen the thoughts of these rum runners who were on trial. And it was very dramatic stuff. You know, newspapers would cover these trials because it was this little petite five foot three woman 
you know, in a pink uh, dress and a, and, a, and a pink hat with a flower <laughs> pin to the brim, you know, walking to the front of courtroom and staring down some of the leading gangsters of her day, including guys who worked for Al Capone and, you know, battling the, the defense lawyer of, of, of Al Capone himself uh, in one of these famous trials in New Orleans in 1933. And, uh, and she did it without fear, even though it sometimes, you know, her life was uh, under threat because, as, as she said one time uh, after she helped catch a rum runner named Dan Hogan, um, he was in a very mean mood. <laughs> and so, the, and so the, the, the feds would have to station plainclothes agents in the, in the courtroom, you know, with concealed weapons ready to stand up and protect her if, if uh, one of the, you know, defendants or allies tried to, uh, tried to harm her or kill her. Journalist Jason Fagoni is the author of The Woman Who Smashed Codes, a true story of love, spies, and the unlikely heroine who outwitted Americans' enemies. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation, Biotech Nation, and Tech Nation Health are available at iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, Dr. Marco Taglietti, the president and CEO of Synexus, will talk about fungal infections. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with journalist Jason Fagoni. We're talking about the pioneering career of codebreaker Elizabeth Smith Friedman and his book, The Woman Who Smashed Codes, a true story of love, spies, and the unlikely heroine who outwitted America's enemies. Now, did I get this number right? During this period, she was decoding 20,000 messages a year? That's correct. They must have really been lousy at encoding messages. <laughs> they were like, <laughs> it's well, a lot of messages, I mean, and they had to be sorted out. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an incredible before computers. This is this is among other things just an incredible sort of managerial task, right? Deal- well, figure there's 200 business days in the year, just in round numbers, right? And so that meant uh, she decoded 100 messages a day. 
if that's all she did. Right. And and uh, by hand. By and, hand. And so and all of these, um, not all of the, not all of the messages turned out to be uh, useful. Some of them were not communicating useful information. But, she had to keep it all in her head. But you had to, you had to you had to solve all of them to know which ones were useful and which ones weren't. And so the ones that were useful had to be filed. They had to be transmitted. And um, and Elizabeth was do- until 1931. Elizabeth was doing these you know thousands of messages a year, tens of thousands, um, with just one assistant. There was there was one clerk typist who was in her unit and Elizabeth. And so essentially these two women. Uh, inside the Coast Guard from 1925 to 1931 were handling all of the, you know, code-breaking traffic for the U.S. Treasury Department in this, in this giant rumoir. It's, it's, it's really impressive to think about, you know, at, at, the, at the point where Elizabeth would produce a stack of solved puzzles that were an inch thick, they would bind the solutions into a book. That was their rule. When the stack of paper got an inch high, they would make a book of it. By 1931, she had 30 of these books, each an inch thick. And so it was essentially an encyclopedia of the, the conversations of the criminal underworld that, that she compiled, essentially alone. And after prohibition is repealed, what is our next criminal activity? Drugs, drug gangs. Breaking up drug gangs because a lot of the syndicates simply moved to drugs after uh, prohibition was repealed. So uh, from 1933 uh, until the end of the decade, Elizabeth uh, broke apart heroin rings, uh, including international heroin rings that had agents in Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Confederates in San Francisco and other parts of the United States. And this duo had a number of children. She was a mother. Yes, the whole time she she was raising two kids, Barbara and uh, John. And sometimes she would, um, you know, on, on Friday she would depart for a trial. Uh, she would solve hundreds of messages over the weekend. She would testify in the trial on Monday, and then she would come back the following week. And, and that weekend she would take her kids out for tea, and they would do uh, crossword puzzles together. And when her kids went to camp, she sent them coded messages. That's right. So, uh, <laughs> what a mom! <laughs> yeah, no, of course. I mean, you have to learn the family, uh, the family business, the family game, right? And this is this is an important thing about Elizabeth and William and the Freedmans is that they really did, at a fundamental level, like puzzles and like solving puzzles. They were interested in in words all their lives and and the, the possibilities of words. And and to them, it was a game. It was other things too, but fundamentally, it was a game. And and they played this game with their kids too. So so when their daughter Barbara went off to camp, summer camp one year. They taught her a very simple substitution cipher, which probably everybody listening to this will will have done at some point in in their life. On as the a comics kid. page, <laughs> yeah, or you, you solve a cryptogram on, on the on the comics page, and essentially that's a substitution cipher. You're trying to find the most frequent letters. You're trying for, you start off usually by trying to find the letter E, right, because it's the most frequent letter in English, and then maybe you try to find a T. If you can get, get T H E, then then you're well on your way to solving the problem. Um, what the what the Friedmans taught Barbara was a substitution cipher where you know A equals B and B equals C and C equals D and so you know everybody everybody listening to this you know when you're in school and you have a you have a crush on somebody in your class you write a little secret note to them and you pass it across across the room you say A equals B B equals C and you write it in your cipher Do you like me Yes or no And this is the cipher that they taught to uh, to Barbara First find out what they got in math Right <laughs> And then uh, and then Barbara would send her letters in the cipher from. Uh, from summer camp and 
and and she and the parents would would correspond this way and this is a, this is something that they they did with their kids all their lives then we roll into World War II, and of course the famous Enigma machines, the encoders for the Nazi regime. Sure. Uh, many people have seen the Benedict Cumberbatch movie, The Imitation Game, where he plays Alan Turing, and they figure out how to decode messages from Enigma. How does that dovetail in with what Elizabeth did? So... The British got a head start on America when it came to these Enigma machines. They they built a secret facility in the countryside outside London called Bletchley Park, and um, soon there were thousands of people working there. You know, and most of them were women, by the way. They were called Wrens, and they organized these large scale attacks on Enigma codes. The Enigma was essentially uh, it was a cipher machine. It was like a typewriter that the Germans used to replace one letter with another in a very complicated way um, that that couldn't be broken by guessing alone. And, um, you know, there were hundreds of Enigma codes, and the keys changed every day. So the keys had to be solved fresh every day, which is why that many people uh, were involved. What Elizabeth did is she worked on breaking a subset of Enigma machines, Enigmas that were used by the spies. And there weren't as many of these machines, and the keys weren't changed as often. So it was possible to break into them with pencil and paper techniques, with a kind of energetic guessing. And she applied her intuition and her experience to do that. And one of the impressive things is that she was doing this starting in 1940, before there was any kind of cooperation between the Americans and the British. So she was doing this independently of the British, essentially on her own. And I found all of these records in the National Archives. You found a number of records in a number of places. I mean, how is it possible that you had enough to put all, get enough material to write this book? Yeah, it's a great question. So Elizabeth left 22 boxes of her personal papers to a private library in Virginia, the George Marshall Foundation, at the end of her life. And this is kind of what she wanted the future to see. And that's where I began three years ago when I, when I started working on this project is, is I went to the Marshall Foundation and I asked to see box one of Elizabeth's collection of the 22 boxes. And I'll never forget that day. I mean, it, you, you get these days sometimes, if, if you're lucky, if you're a journalist, where you find a, an archive or, or a voice and you just get uh, pulled in and you're completely captivated and you don't want to do anything else except to, to follow the story. Uh, to its logical end, and that's exactly what it was like. Because these these boxes contained incredible riches. Um, they hold Elizabeth's uh, letters from every almost every phase of her life. Her early love letters with William. Her college diary is there. Original code worksheets from from different periods of her career. And um, pretty quickly, I realized that the boxes contain, you know, an untold story of a legitimate American pioneer, somebody who was genuinely important and had done a lot of path-breaking things that, that really deserved to be told. But um, there was also a gap in the boxes uh, that cried out for more investigation because there was nothing there from 1939 to 1945. There were, there were things, things in the boxes before that era, before World War II, and there were things after World War II, but there was nothing about World War II itself. And so I started to get curious and I asked around, what was Elizabeth doing the, during the war, right? I wanted to know. Nobody seemed to know. And um, somebody told me that uh, the files might be in the National Archives and you'll never find them because uh, the National Archives is essentially like 
the last scene in Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost yeah. Ark. You know, when they find we finally find the Ark and they put it in the in the wooden crate and they wheel it into the government uh, uh, warehouse with, with ten thousand identical wooden crates. You know, it could be in the the National Archives is not digitized. It could be in there and you could spend years looking for it and you'll never find it. But eventually, I did find the Ark. As far as uh, Elizabeth's war service is concerned, I found. Um, at the National Archives in College Park, Maryland, I found a 329-page technical diary that describes uh, the work of her Coast Guard unit during World War II. And I also found 4,000 of the raw decrypts, the translated German messages that her unit solved during World War II. And putting those together, it was possible to to piece together this this long, hidden story of what Elizabeth did in World War II. And it turned out to be more surprising uh, and dramatic than I had ever expected. And let's not forget, she never talked about it much during her life. She, well, she never talked about it because what she was doing was solving the secret messages of Nazi spies. So, uh, you know, when World War II broke out, Nazi spies began spreading west from Berlin and Hamburg into the Western Hemisphere looking for intelligence on America and Britain. And a lot of them went to South America because South America was kind of up for grabs. It was a neutral continent and it was very close. It was a good listening post. And so these Nazi spies uh, set up shop in South America in multiple countries. They brought clandestine radio equipment, uh, radio transmitters, and they set up little pirate radio stations. And they began sending encrypted messages back to Berlin and Hamburg. And this is a real problem for American intelligence to find out what these Nazi spies were saying. And uh, the FBI was completely unprepared to solve this problem because the FBI uh, didn't have any kind of code-breaking unit. All the FBI had at that point was um, a technical research laboratory, which was more like a crime lab. It was kind of where they analyzed bullets and fibers from crime scenes and that sort of thing. And yet the FBI's responsibility was to try to... Uh, to try to find these Nazi spy rings and, and destroy them. They just, they didn't have the technical ability to do that. And so they had to rely on somebody who did. And that turned out to be Elizabeth Smith Friedman because, you know, for 15 years at that point, she had been doing target practice on rum runners and drug smugglers. It just so happened that Elizabeth had the right set of skills when World War II broke out to go after these Nazi spies because it turned out that the spies were using very similar radio equipment and very similar codes as the rum runners and the drug smugglers had used. And so Elizabeth was, was ready to go. And, and that's, this is what she spent World War II doing. She, she monitored uh, up to 50 clandestine radio circuits that were used by Nazi spies. She and her unit solved about 4,000 uh, different Nazi messages. And they provided these messages to allied intelligence agencies, to the Army, to the Navy, um, to the FBI, and to British intelligence. And then... Uh, as I document in the book, um, at the end of the war, J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI stuck up his hand and said, uh, America, the FBI saved you from this dangerous Nazi spy invasion, and, uh, and we'd like the credit now. And, and he got it, and Elizabeth didn't. You should have said, Elizabeth saved you. <laughs> Elizabeth saved you. There is so much in this book. We've just we've just kind of skimmed across the surface here. It's uh it's it's fascinating from a tech standpoint, from an encryption standpoint, from a historical standpoint, the evolution of the NSA coming into being and like computers start to show up. But I mean, we're talking about you know, this is a you know, through this 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 untapped microcosm of 
of Elizabeth and her journey, you know, we can actually see through history in a way that we it was is untainted by reports in the media. Even though both of us are members of the media. <laughs> well, you're right. We're we're seeing the birth of computer security here. We're seeing the birth of counterintelligence in a lot of ways, which is in the news every every day now with the counterintelligence investigation into Russian influence, and and we're seeing the birth of the American intelligence community in a, in a raw way that we don't usually get because. Elizabeth was not interested in publicity at all. She 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 hated publicity. She she couldn't stand publicists. She didn't like journalists. Uh, she, she would have liked us. Well, no, 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 she wouldn't. Have. <laughs> she might have liked. She might have liked you um, because you're you're technical and and I'm not. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, she she did not like the distortion of information and anyone that she thought was being dishonest. She she was very very wary of and so. Um, when you get the history of the of the birth and growth of American intelligence through Elizabeth's eyes, you you get it raw. You get the real deal, um, and you also see how much of it is kind of constructed after the fact by by men who are trying to tell heroic versions of the tale. And you know, and and when they told the tale, um, they left her out of it, which uh, which I, I think irritated her and, and, and troubled her because, you know, as, as you said, she wasn't able to talk about it in the way that they were. She had to keep the ultra secret um, even until the end of her life. And, uh, and so as a result, you know, people didn't know that she was a hero of World War II, and she absolutely was, was a hero. Even her, uh, even her family didn't know. Jason, thank you so much for coming in. Please come back. See us again. Oh, that was fun. Thank you so much. My guest today is Jason Fagoni. The book is The Woman Who Smashed Codes, a true story of love, spies, and the unlikely heroine who outwitted America's enemies. It's published by Day Street, an imprint of HarperCollins. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Infectious diseases can come from many sources bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites, and more. It can be a little difficult to grasp, but if you have such a condition, from a common cold to a much more serious disease, you've been infected by a living organism, which was somehow passed to you, and you may unwittingly pass it along. The symptoms are frequently the same, but the cause makes all the difference in treatment. For example, if you have an infection caused by bacteria, antibiotics can address the bacteria directly. But if your condition is caused by, say, a virus or a fungus, antibiotics simply won't work. Dr. Marco Taglietti is the president and CEO of Synexis, which is working in the area of serious invasive fungal infections. I asked him, what's the difference between a bacterial infection, a viral infection, and a fungal infection? Well, as an infectious disease specialist, all these are all due to a specific pathogen. But these pathogens are very different. The viral uh, the viruses are the most, uh, let's say, basic type of pathogens. They need to uh, leverage the metabolism of the cells that they infect in order to spread. 
And um, these are actually type of infections that are very, very common, you know, cold, the flu. The bacterial infection are due to a pathogen which is a little bit more from a, an evolutionary point of view, a little bit more evolved. So it's, a, it's an organism capable of living by itself and it's spreading spreading around. These type of infections, uh, there are of course hundreds of uh, different types of, of bacterial infections and they, uh, and they can range from very, very mild infections to very, very severe too, uh, especially when they involve the patients that are uh, very fragile. And the fungal infections, which is the area of interest uh, for myself and my company, is really the, the one where there are the most, uh, the, the most evolved type of organisms, more similar actually to the human cells. And this is, explains why they're much more difficult to treat, because when you try to treat a virus or a bacteria, they are so different from our cells that it makes somewhat easier to find good targets that don't, do not damage human cells. If we but, take an antibiotic, we never think of it damaging the human cell. It's just after the bacteria. Yes, because it's after the bacteria because it targets some kind of structure or enzyme or, or receptor that is present only in the bacteria. But as you start to move to fungal infection, and the fungi are much more similar to our uh, cells, it becomes more and more difficult to find a mechanism or a receptor or an enzyme which is specific for the fungi. This is why fungi have been traditionally much more difficult to treat than bacteria. A fungal infection, is, is it just called that or are there diseases that we would call fungal, that happen to be fungal infections? Oh, absolutely. For, so first of all, there are two major groups of fungal infections. Superficial fungal infections, which are very common, like, uh, for example, um, onychomycosis, the infections that you have of the nails, uh, you know, black nails. athlete's foot? Athlete's foot, vulvovaginal candidiasis. These are all... Uh, Typical, uh, typical fungal infection, superficial fungal infection, or thrust, the infection that you can have in, in the mouth, or even a certain kind of uh, uh, diaper rash in, uh, in ah. children can be a superficial fungal infection. And these are usually relatively easy to treat. The second group of infections are infections in um, patients usually immunocompromised, where the fungi had the opportunity to invade the body and the bloodstream of the patient. Because you're immunocompromised. Exactly. In fact, the, these type of invasive fungal infections have been really increasing in the last uh, several decades as we improved, actually, our ability, for example, to treat patients with transplant, transplantation or cancer patients with new chemotherapy that treated for example, the original disease, like in cancer, but also caused immunodepression. And when a subject is immunodepressed, the fungi can find a way inside the body of the patients. And these are very serious infections with high mortality, 20 to 50% mortality, because uh, both the infection is very aggressive and the patient is very frail. Are these normally acquired inside, say, a hospital setting? Actually, it's interesting. Usually, the most of the infection, for example, candidiasis, which is the most common form of invasive uh, fungal infection, is actually an endogenous infection. In other words, most of the patients have are carrying 
this already uh, have it. Already have it. And and what happens is that when they get immunosuppressed, the fungi they say time to time to start rising. Absolutely. Let's open the door and let's get in. And uh, and this is what what happens. And. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, and of course, uh, there may be also situation where actually someone can acquire um, certain fungal infections. Like, for example, there are infection endemic infection, like in certain areas of the, uh, of Arizona and New Mexico. There is infection called Valley Fever, which is a common of that area, and is a an infection, a fungal infection, usually a form a respiratory infection, like a sort of a pneumonia, but can spread actually to the whole body. And also other infections, like uh, Aspergillus, is a very common fungi in the air. Uh, and uh, most people, they just breathe in and breathe out the fungi, the aspergillus, without problems. But uh, there are situations in which the subject is immunocompromised, and the fungi, once it's in, in the lungs, can start to spread and start to grow inside the lungs. Now, if you have a fungal infection and you're immune compromised, you're already being treated for your immune comprom whatever mm. caused you to be mm. immune compromised. What how do you treat the fungal infection? For, you know, like there are antivirals, antibacterials, there are, of course, antifungals. The, and this is what is used, antifungals. Uh, the major challenge with antifungals, however, is that differently from antibacterial, which, as I mentioned, there are many possible targets that you can uh, go after uh, when you fight this infection, for antifungals, there are not too many targets. So there are only basically three classes of antifungals with uh, seven, eight antifungals. Compared to antibacterial, antibacterials where you may have dozens of classes and uh, where you can have hundreds of different antibacterials. So we have antifungals. They are effective. However, it's a very limited number. And so when a, st a strain of fungi becomes resistant, there is not too much left. And this is one of the biggest challenges that we have currently in the area of antifungals. So what's Synexis working on? So uh, Synexis, we are working on a novel antifungal with a, 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 a new class. So we are bringing a, a fourth class to the, uh, to the armamentarium of the doctors. Um, and it's a, a broad-spectrum antifungal that can be given both orally and intravenously. And um, most importantly, is a, an antifungal that by belonging to a different class is active against strains that are resistant to other antifungals. So that is um, really the focus of our activity. A novel antifungals, broad spectrum, able to fight resistance, antifungal resistance. So the fungi haven't seen it before, therefore it, it's not resistant to it. Exactly. Exactly. These pathogens, being bacterial or fungi, uh, as soon as they start to see the new weapon, they start to, to think how to go around it. And uh, this one is going to be a endless warfare with them. Um, one thing I, I mention frequently is that I truly believe that one day we will treat conditions like cancer, Alzheimer, uh, Parkinson, you just name it. But one area... One area where we will continue to have a fight is actually infections because uh, this pathogen have been here billions of years before us. 
they will be here billions of years after us, and every time we find something that can kill them, well, they start to work to find a way to go around it. So that is uh, actually one of the reasons I love anti-infectives so much. Now, bacteria, unlike humans, can pass information between them. DNA between them, so that if if one gets a resistance, it can pass it along. You know, we only pass DNA on to our offspring. Uh, what about fungi? Can they pass DNA between them, or do Actually, we even this know? This is a, a excellent question. Let me just say, it's, uh, as you said, bacteria have a way like transposon or plasmid to actually to transfer not only to other bacteria of the same species, the resistant, but even to uh, bacteria of a different species, whereas antifungals, um, fungi, fungi don't have this capability. They don't have this capability to do, uh, to use transposon or plasmids to transfer. And again, it's because their, uh, uh, let's say, biological machinery is much more complex than, than the one of a bacteria. And, uh, and so this mechanism does not exist, which is an advantage Phew. for us. Phew. Yes, <laughs> it's an advantage for us because this means that we have an opportunity to, uh, you know, to find, uh, to find something and knowing that will not spread if they uh, become resistant to someone else. Why is the effort that you're working on a fourth class? What is it targeting that the others are not? We uh, actually the one we are targeting an enzyme that has been shown already to be uh, very effective in uh, uh, inhibiting the growth and killing actually uh, the the fungi, and so we have an, at least another class that target the same enzyme, and it's called the glucan synthase inhibitor. It's an enzyme that uh, helps to build a hard shell around the fungi. Think like almost a coconut shell protecting the, the fungi. And this is what we do. We disrupt that shell so the fungi will die. We are targeting so a, an enzyme that has been shown already to be a very effective target. But we are targeting with a different kind of molecule, a completely different class that will inhibit this enzyme in a different way. And in fact, one of the advantages of this is that it could be used in combination with other fungi to make sure that uh, if some of these fungi try to escape by using combination, we, make, we can be sure to nail them down. So what we do by inhibiting this enzyme, the hard shell around the enzyme, think like a coconut shell, just breaks down. Ah, and when it breaks down, there's no protection. When protection, actually, the fungi becomes like a blob uh, that uh, just uh, just breaks down and dies. Well, Marco, thank you so much. Please come back and see us again. Uh, thank you. It was my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Dr. Marco Taglietti is the president and CEO of Synexus. More information is available at Synexus.com. That's Synexus, S-C-Y. N-E-X-I-S, Synexus.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell. 
with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.